You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. This is Chris Costa, Executive Director, International Spy Museum. Today we're joined on the phone by recently retired General Joseph Votel. General Votel last served as commander of the United States Central Command, where he was responsible for U.S. and coalition military operations in the Middle East, Levant, and Central and South Asia. General Votel had a distinguished 39-year U.S. Army career, serving much of that time in special operations. We will post the rest of your bio for our listeners on our website. Sir, good afternoon. It's great to see you. Hey, Chris, how are you? It's great to, great to be with you, and it's wonderful I'm, to be on SpyCast. Well, thanks for joining us today. We really appreciate it. It's a privilege to have you on. I look forward to this. So, again, thank you for joining us today. Before we get started in earnest, I thought it was important to note for our listeners that I was very fortunate to have served under you while you were the commander, U.S. Special Operations Command, and commander of Joint Special Operations Command, JSOC. And I had several opportunities to see you before I left my last job in government at the White House in 2018. As a preface, I'd like to begin the conversation with the earliest days of the Trump administration. In February 2017, I traveled to Tampa to your headquarters at Central Command with POTUS and a fairly large delegation from the White House when you, General Thomas, and General Dunford, Chairman of the JCS, all had an opportunity to discuss accelerating the ISIS campaign, and you had an opportunity to engage POTUS at that time, and I certainly was a backseater in that, uh, not at the table. From my perspective, counterterrorism priorities defined the earliest months of the new administration. By February 2017, the media had reported on a palpable threat stream from the Middle East, 
you oversaw an operation against Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, and you were really responsible for the defeat ISIS campaign. To sum up, there was a lot of pressure on you and U.S. Central Command. Can you take us back to that time? What were you thinking? What was going through your mind? Yeah, thanks, uh, thanks, Chris. Well, first of all, I, we were very excited to host the president and his team uh, so, re- so early on after his inauguration. It was a that was a really uh, seminal event uh, for us and a great opportunity um, to to host the president down there. We're very very glad he chose to come to CENTCOM first. But I, I guess I would share just a, a few comments with you about, about where my head was at, at this particular time. First off, at this point in the campaign here in early 2017, the plan was in place and we were beginning to see success in the overall military campaign. Now, it certainly uh, certainly wasn't irreversible at this point. Uh, there had been a series of ground actions, both in Iraq and Syria, that were moving in the direction that we wanted to go. And we had, uh, we had a very incremental uh, campaign at that particular point. And when I say incremental, it means we focused on specific uh, activities, specific battles, specific areas we wanted to focus, and was that was kind of our approach to build some momentum into this. So we were still at this point really trying to gain momentum, although we we knew we were on the right approach uh, with the overall campaign plan. Um, our partners, in particular, were beginning to hit their stride uh, in Iraq. We had uh, we had accomplished a, a fair amount of rebuilding of the Iraqi army that was so beaten down in 2014 uh, has now had now come back. And while there was still a ways to go, uh, they were actually racking up some victories. Uh, but of course, it wasn't just the Iraqi forces. There was the militia. There was the CT elements. And, in, uh, and uh, the, the Ministry of Interior, federal police type organizations that were also part of this. So a key piece that we were focused on at this time with the Iraqis was helping them with unity of effort. Uh, we had seen real problems with this in places like Fallujah. And so, and where I was in terms of the partner development with the Iraqis was how do we get them to uh, to more of a unity of effort, recognizing they're never gonna be a you know, a coherent joint force like we would think of. So that was where we were. Over in Syria with the Syrian Democratic Forces, um, we had, uh, you know, we were uh, dealing with areas like uh, Manbij, which were, uh, you know, coming to a conclusion here. Um, And we were now moving out of the traditional Kurdish areas more and more into the uh, traditional Arab areas. So the Arab component of the of the Syrian Democratic Forces was actually becoming more important at this particular point. And what we were trying to do was kind of foster that uh, and keep that going and continue to bring on Arab militias uh, to support General Maslum and his YPG forces as they uh, continued to march against uh, against uh, <clears throat> against ISIS. And of course, we were continuing to deal with some of the other. Uh, features of the battlefield, uh, concerns from Turkey and Russian uh, support to the regime. So this was, these were all kind of key things. I think the third point that I'd make to you about this is that the nature of the campaign, the fight was actually beginning to change at this time. As I mentioned to you, we had, we had started this out in a very incremental fashion, but as we closed on to places like Mosul, it became very apparent that we were now entering a different phase of the operation where it was going to be long, sustained campaigns. And what that meant was we would have to rely on leaders at the lower levels uh, to make decisions, where in the past we had been, we had kept some of that at a higher level. In, in, in the beginning, 
uh, it was it was a lot of it came back to CENTCOM and then uh, we started to move it down. But by this time, by early 2017, we were we were gaining momentum. We knew that our success was dependent upon getting decision making to the right to the right level. Um, and uh, we also knew that there had to be greater fluidity in the uh, between the fights in Iraq and Syria. As you will recall, we had a separate set of, uh, you know, before the Trump administration came in, we actually had some different authorities in Iraq than we had in Syria, yet we're fighting a contiguous enemy here. Uh, and so I think one of the very, very helpful things that took place early on here was, uh, you know, through the Department of Defense, ultimately with the National Security Council and the president, was making sure that we uh, got the authorities that we needed to, to, you know, to make this a fluid, fluid operation between Iraq and Syria. And I think that was a really important piece. But they, my ability to move resources where I needed them to be without always going back and asking uh, for a you know, National Security Council decision was very, very important. And I know people talk about this, about increasing the authorities. This is one of the examples here. It was very, very helpful to us, and it came at the right time in the campaign. And then I would say the last thing that I was really thinking about at this point was coalition coherence. Um, you know, we had a growing coalition. They are very important to us. You know, they, they brought unique capabilities. There's nobody's going to bring as much to this as the United States does, but they brought important capabilities. So we were very keen at this time to get some other coalition partners on the ground with us in in Syria, and we were working with the Norwegians and with the uh, with the uh, with the French and with uh, some others here to uh, to get this going, and uh, th that was very very important for us uh, as as well. So uh, you know that coalition coherence was an important aspect of it. Yeah, a lot of times. Well, first of all, that's a great lay down. A lot of times, people forget that that coalition consisted of seventy two or seventy three countries, and it's important because of partners were tremendously critical, I think, to the success of the operation. And just jumping forward, and then we'll come back a little bit. By the time you retired, ISIS and the physical caliphate was mostly gone. AQAP to this day are reportedly on the ropes, and it appears that wide-scale troop withdrawals are on the horizon in Afghanistan. So, in short, really the Middle East landscape has already changed significantly when you reflect back to 2017. So I'd like to shift a little bit to the Middle East and take on something we're all dealing with, and uh, that is COVID-19. How do you think the pandemic is going to affect the Middle East? Well, I think first and foremost, it's going to divert attention away from uh, you know, the long-standing issues that we have been dealing with in, in places like the Middle East. And I think the big concern that I have for something like COVID or pandemic, and certainly in this part of the world, is that it has the potential to spiral and to make these deep underlying issues even worse. So you think about the large groups of refugees, you think about the disenfranchised uh, population, you think about the disparity between uh, you know, wealth and poverty here. You think about corrupt governance, uh, the inability of governance to extend out to the people. All of this becomes even worse uh, in uh, in this situation. And of course, it creates the the environment and the, the disruptive, chaotic environment that groups like ISIS and others really thrive upon. Um, you know, it was interesting, and I'm sure you've seen this, but there's a a report the other day that I saw of an interview of uh, of an ISIS family member, a wife, 
actually referring to COVID as a, as a soldier of Allah. Um, that's the way they look at this. And uh, I mean, this is not, they're not concerned about themselves or the spread of the virus. They are looking at this as a way to enable, uh, you know, their objectives and to move forward. And I think this should be of great concern for us and certainly is to me. I, I couldn't agree with you more. In fact, I've been talking about that in some of our programs, this very notion that it's apocalyptic, so it supports their worldview. Uh, ISIS worldview. So it is something that we have to watch. And, and, and plus, more broadly, I think the U.S. could be potentially distracted. Um, so that I'd like to move on to Syria. Last fall, I think October, al-Baghdadi was killed. By all accounts, it was a brilliant U.S. raid operation. I want to know what you think of uh, the impact on ISIS in terms of the future health of ISIS. Do you think it matters? Yeah, no, well, first off, I, I would agree with you, Chris. It was, a, it was a brilliant military operation. And, you know, it's something we've become used to in, uh, in, uh, in our, in, you know, from our military and certainly from our special operations forces of being able to put together complex high-risk uh, missions like this and execute them with, uh, with such precision, accuracy, and effectiveness. And again, and again it, a lot, you have to give a lot of credit to the people on the ground, but there are others that contributed to this as well, intelligence community that helps with this. And of course, we had partners, and it's you know it's 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 been reported that the Iraqis helped us with some of the intelligence for this. So we have to give credit where credit is due, and in this important operation. But you know, I, I think um, you know removing leadership is a is a critically important and necessary uh, part of our of uh, of our CT operations. Uh, but uh, while it is necessary, it's not wholly sufficient. Um, it is important to remember that. Uh, that uh, actors like al-Baghdadi or bin Laden or others uh, that we have removed over, and any number of the ISIS leaders have always had uh, plans in place for continuation of operations and continuation of leadership. So it's absolutely critical that as we move forward, even with this, this very successful operation, that we continue to keep pressure on these networks and on the leadership that does it. You know, when you look back to the very effective approach that we took against AQI, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, back in the 2006, 7, 8, 9 timeframe, this, this was the model right here, it was constant pressure. Uh, and removing leaders and disrupting their system as much as you can. And soon you have people doing two or three or four different things and you, you just overwhelm them with your own uh, momentum in this. And that's the important thing I think we have to keep, uh, keep in terms of this. You know, removing people like Baghdadi is, is important. Uh, it's, it's not only symbolic, it, it, gets at the, it, gets, it, it disrupts the ideology a little bit. He certainly was a central figure in all of this. Uh, he was an important unifying leader uh, for uh, for ISIS, and so you know th these are always Im important operations, and uh, they're critical to, the, to doing this. But they're but they're not sufficient in and of themselves to actually accomplish our objectives. We have to keep the pressure going on this. So that's a great segue to the next part of the discussion. What what is the impact of pulling out U.S. military forces for all intents and purposes out of Syria? a much smaller footprint. I know you wrote some excellent pieces along with Elizabeth Dent in The Atlantic. I, if, if you can reflect back on some of your thoughts at the time and where you are today, I'd be interested to know going forward, where does that leave us? Clearly, Turkey is, Turkey is fully engaged now. 
Um, you know, Idlib is uh, still contested, I think, but uh, so you have Al Qaeda there and you have remnants of ISIS, they're gonna crop up. There's reporting that I've seen open source that there are clandestine cells, they're keeping their heads down, but it's not over. And uh, what does that pullout really mean going forward? Yes, thanks. So, you know, first off, I, I, I do have to acknowledge, uh, as, as many many of our listeners probably understand, that the, the Kurds, the Syrian Democratic Forces, the Kurdish portion of that, and the Arabs have made that up, were very, very good and reliable partners for us. Uh, clearly, the Kurds provided the backbone, the leadership of all of this, and were extraordinarily reliable partners for us. And I, I'm glad that despite uh, some of our policy decisions we've made here, we have been able to maintain some type of relationship uh, with them and maintain contact, in some cases actually be co-located with them. This, I think, is is very, very important. Um, what I learned about, uh, about um, get to the question here in just a moment, but what I learned about, uh, about the SDF and the Kurds and Syrian Kurds in particular is they were experts at balancing relationships with multiple actors. Even during the time that, uh, you know, and I interacted with General Maslum uh, and over the course of three years, basically, you know, it was always very evident to me and he was very, he was quite transparent in this, that he was talking to everybody. He talked to the, you know, his, maybe not him directly, but his, his organization talked to the talk to the regime, they talk to the Russians, they talk to the Iranians. Um, so, you know, they're, they're expert at balancing uh, relationships with, uh, with multiple partners. And, and, and right now, I, I think my assessment is, is that that balance seems to be holding uh, right now. I, I, I have maintained a contact with General Mazum. I haven't talked to him in a couple months here. I hope to look to talk with him again soon. But, you know, in my last discussion with him, he seemed to think things are kind of balanced on the ground. I think the challenge here is that uh, while that that's good that things are kind of balanced and and maybe have stabilized to some aspect and the violence is down a little bit, it really is not addressing the long term issues here. The long term issues are you know recovery and reconstruction in this part of the country. The yeah. long term issue associated with uh, you know a political a level of political inclusion uh, of the Kurds into into the Syrian regime, uh, and of course there's the issue with Turkey that goes along with that. Uh, and then, you know, of course, the long-term prospects for uh, for peace. So, you know, I think the you know these things still remain. Yeah, I think it's important, and I'm sure our listeners understand all this. Is that you know campaigns are, can't just have military components. They have to have political and um, uh, diplomatic and you know uh, develop humanitarian aspects of all of them. And and I, and what I am what I'm uh, I think the most concerned about is that while we've had a good military outcome here from you know our campaign against the caliphate we have not yet found an effective political model um, uh, uh, to to begin to address these underlying issues and there's several things going on there's uh, you know the, the effort goes on with uh, Iran and Turkey and uh, and Russia through the Astana process and then there's a, a kind of a, a UN process uh, that is uh, kind of moving forward there, but you know I, I, I'm I'm fearful that we uh, you know that we don't have the political clout because of how we are there right now to actually you know see our see our, 
see the help see that area through um, to some kind of political solution. And I think it's not necessarily because we don't have the diplomatic heft, if you will, meaning the people that can do this. I think it's, you know, the reduction in our presence, our limited scale of operations on the ground, I think have impacted our ability to influence the situation. So I think the task going forward is to try to find a constructive way to advance the you know, a peace process here. And I, I think it's got to be a process to the United Nations. And uh, I know that's a that's a difficult prospect, but all of these are going to be difficult. And the United Nations offers the best opportunity, I think, to add legitimacy to a solution that takes place here. And, and, and then perhaps opens up economic aid and other things that have to come to uh, have to come to Syria to help stabilize this and make sure that it doesn't become, you know, the sucking chest wound and the source of of uh, instability for the um, for for the Levant and much less the the broader the broader region and so you know I think the the best thing we can do is you know is continue to ensure our influence certainly in places like Iraq and and then look at how we help uh, bolster some of the le the legitimate peace process uh, efforts uh, that are trying to trying to gain some traction here in in Syria and i think this is going to be this is going to really be a difficult and lengthy process for us we'll be right back after this the it world used to be simpler you only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Yeah, it certainly will be a long haul. So you explicitly in the, the two articles you talked, you made two very important points. One, you, you mentioned the importance of intelligence gathering and the impact of pulling forces out and how it could affect intelligence gathering. Realize there are sensitivities there, but if you want to offer some insights on that. And secondly, perhaps more importantly, really, is the detainee issue which I've been concerned about, not only the radicalization of, of, of families, but also just the hardcore fighters that are being detained. So could you talk a little bit about those two areas? Right. So, no, uh, yeah, so uh, Elizabeth Dent, my colleague from the Middle East Institute, and I have both uh, wrote about this on a couple of occasions here. And, you know, I, I, think, um, I think the concern that we were trying to highlight in this is that the, a policy decision of this nation, I think, does call into question um, our commitment and staying power and and uh, our our uh, you know commitment to our to our long term partners or to our partners. Uh, I'm not sure we characterize them as long term, but as to our partners. You know, it, it was it was it was difficult for me to uh, to overcome the the sacrifice that the uh, Syrian Democratic Forces made on behalf of the coalition, 11,000 killed and wounded uh, in in the course of the campaign. You know, versus our 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 killed and wounded here. I mean, it was it was uh, it was 
not not in not in any kind of equal comparison certainly and so there was a significant uh, significant commitment that they made and and along the way we had uh, we had promised them we had told them that we are going to see you through with this that had been our policy and so uh, an abrupt change like this i think uh, does upset this and it, and it, and it really undermines, I think, the relationships. Now, what's what's happened in in as the situation has played out, the the uh, the Kurds have proved to be more resilient, I think, in their relationship. Right. So we have been able to maintain a relationship. And you know, I can't make a judgment on their level of trust or anything else. But they're with our they're co-located with our forces on the ground in, in some areas here, and we continue to cooperate and collaborate and do other things like we had done. So that's good. Um, but I think the the idea here is that, uh, you know, we have to be careful of undermining long-term relationships and sending the message to others that we don't value this. I think it's important for our listeners here and others to recognize that back in 2014, when we were, when we went through a lengthy political process to decide if we were going to go back into Iraq when ISIS took over, you know, and we made, we actually, we, we made the decision. The way we did that was we used personal relationships between special operations officers and Iraqi Kurdish partners that they had had during our last our last uh, piece. We had some relationships and things going on at the embassy, but to get into the actual campaign and begin doing things like that, uh, we really had to rely on those relationships. And uh, and uh, and I and I had a front row seat to seeing this because I was the JSOC commander at the time. And and I and I recall the reporting that we got back here as our officers, a couple of officers went in on the ground and started. It was we picked up just like that where these uh, where these relationships had dropped off in 2011 and that's to me is testament to the to the importance and strength of relationships and that's that's what we're trying to trying to preserve long term and of course as as you talked about the 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 refugee situation the encampments and other things on the ground here these are long term issues that are going to have to be addressed and then, and they're going to have to be addressed internationally uh, there are you know uh, detainment locations that are being guarded by the Syrian Democratic Forces of the Kurds, Syrian Kurds that uh, where there are fighters. Uh, there are fighters going on the ground. Of course, there are camps like Al-Hal where we've got, uh, you know, literally thousands of family members. Yeah. And, uh, and these aren't just family members that have been displaced here. These are radicalized family members in many places. You know, it was it was instructive to all of us that as this as this uh, fight against the caliphate concluded in March of uh, 2019, as we were loading family members on the trucks and moving them to places like Al Hall to get them out of the, the area, they were singing ISIS fight songs. They were as radicalized and as uh, aggressive in their rhetoric at that time as as we would have ever seen from ISIS. And so these these people represent the true believers. And when you when you put them in camps like this, your long term refugee camps in the Middle East are are a problem. And uh, and so this has to be addressed. And I think it's going to require a significant. Uh, a significant international effort uh, to uh, to uh, to ultimately resolve. I couldn't agree with you more. I made that point to many foreign partners that it is not exclusively a U.S. problem. It is a world problem, and and there are future would-be terrorists that are in those camps now. 
and uh, to your point, they're radicalizing. So those are great points. If you can kind of in brief just offer your perspectives, what are our objectives going forward regarding, and this is a loaded question, regarding Syria, Iraq, and Iran. If you had to boil it down to a few key points, what does the United States need out of the region right now? Well, I think uh, I think one of the one of the countries most important to us here is Iraq, and I think one of our objectives here ought to be to continue to support the sovereignty of Iraq, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, help them. You know, they live in a difficult neighborhood. They've got a fourteen hundred kilometer border with Iran. Uh, that's not going to change. That that that's a that's a that's a fact. That's uh, it's going to be present now and in, well into the future for a long time. And they'll probably never change. So you've got we got to be pragmatic about this, but we also have to support Iraq for Iraqis uh, and help them uh, withstand the influence that comes from Iran, or withstand or, or deal with the uh, with the problems they have with uh, Shia militia groups that are more beholden to Iran than they are to the government of Iraq. And this will take patience and it'll take persistence on our part, but it's worthwhile because this is a great way to hedge against against uh, Iraq a, a stable uh, or Iran a, a stable Iraq at the at this critical nexus is is really important for us so I think that's our first objective the second thing I think is we just got to have a sustainable approach to long-term uh, to our long-term military relationship and that'll largely be through security cooperation and we've got a We've got to we've got to make sure that we have organized ourselves on the ground for this, and that we can continue to stay engaged. Uh, we don't necessarily need to have large forces on the ground for a long period of time, but what we do need to have is a very capable um, and well-resourced security cooperation program. So, relatedly, you talked about and you've written about gray zone conflict, and. I think Syria has become the model of, of what you've written about, this idea of a battle for influence in the region. You had Russian, Russians on the ground, you had Turks on the ground, you had ISIS, you have regime forces, counter-regime forces, Al-Qaeda, Hezbollah, Iranian proxies, and other militia groups, all playing for influence on the ground. What are your thoughts on this battle for influence? Did we see ground in this important conflict, or am I making too much of it? I, I know we've we've talked about this before because I think uh, no one has articulated gray zone conflict better than you have. You kind of made made that term a term of art. So if you could talk a little bit about gray zone, what it means to you, and what it means on the ground in Syria, really in the region. Yeah, thanks. So, well, I think you kind of hit it on the head here. Yeah, the 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 you know the what. One of the things we have to do in the Middle East is we have to compete. Now, you know, our national uh, military strategy is focused on competitive advantage against great powers like uh, uh, China in particular and Russia to some extent. Uh, and, but a key part of this is, is making sure that we compete in other areas against the great powers. We don't give up our influence in these areas. And that's, so that's what competition in the gray zone means in, in this particular area. And we have unfortunately made some decisions um, in the past that uh, have really made this very, very complicated. Our decision to step away so completely in 2011 from Iraq that we saw what happened there, uh, and uh, and we 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 
failed to consolidate on on this great victory that we had had, uh, you know, and uh, uh, up to that point, and and uh, we saw the the aspects of that, and we created a situation, you know, that got worse, and that others allowed to step into this, uh, you know, our decision to limit our influence and uh, limit the amount of terrain that we are, uh, you know, that we that our, at least our partners had control over in Syria with our great assistance, I think, has ceded a little bit of the initiative in that regard in, in Syria. And I think we have removed ourselves from really being uh, a, uh, the, you know, a credible partner here who could, uh, who can help drive the, the long-term solution. So, you know, I, this is, I think, what, what kind of concerns me uh, about this. Um, and, uh, and so in the Middle East, we have to compete. We have to compete in these areas right here. And again, competing doesn't necessarily mean um, large military forces. In some cases, it doesn't mean military forces at all. What we have to do is we have to look at how we balance our, our complete you know, elements of power here, whether it is military, whether it's economic, whether it is business, uh, whether it is informational, um, uh, you know, uh, um, or it's our, you know, our diplomacy, our, our political power in this area. And, and we have to maintain influence. You know, one of the things that the, the, the political advisors that I've had working for me at SOCOM and and at CENTCOM have always reminded me is that, you know, it has been a longstanding precept of our foreign policy that we wouldn't let um, we wouldn't let another foreign power control this area it would be uh, it would it would not be uh, supportive of our national interests and so we've had a long-standing strategy that has done this we balance relationships between Iran and Saudi Arabia for a long time and we've continued to be an actor in the region so I, I think we have to we have to compete and we have to stay focused on being an influential uh, partner in this part of the world so I, I'm going to digress for a second to go back to the question. I should have come back to it on intelligence again, because I think that's related. Uh, without a, a big footprint on the ground, we still have capabilities, intelligence capabilities. And you wrote about the loss of some of those capabilities by pulling forces out. And since this is a broader battle for influence and, and there's other concerns, we haven't even mentioned Israel, their concern with proxies on the ground in Syria, leaving from Lebanon. The Israelis are making their presence known, at least uh, kinetically in places like uh, Syria. So if you could talk a little bit about the loss of intelligence, or do you think that might be overblown? Yeah, um, well, I think that, I think this is an aspect, but let me just let me just say this, is that, you know, the intelligence community is one of the jewels in our, in our crown here. Of how we how we protect ourselves and preserve our interests, and that's important. And we're better today than we were, you know, a year ago or ten years ago or twenty years ago. We're better at this, um, but there are going to be challenges as we <clears throat> as we continue to move forward. And, and uh, when we step back from partners, uh, you know, we we. Uh, we we lose the the inherent human capability uh, that comes along with all of this. Uh, the long-term relationships that we develop are things that don't just serve us for you know serve us for you know the operations doing today, but they are things that help us in the long term. And that's 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 how we <clears throat> that's how we uh, use economy of force here. How we you know a a real tool for us to limit our 
our physical presence on the ground is to have a great network of partners that are feeding us information that are, that are, 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 are trustworthy to us and, and help us understand the situation. So when we have to respond, we can, or if we can assist them in responding, we can do that as well. So I, I really view this as a, as a way of, uh, of offsetting risk here and allowing us to concentrate in other areas where we actually need more uh, military uh, uh, capability in the Pacific or in Europe or wherever it happens to be uh, to support our interests. But in, intelligence really, I think, helps helps offset uh, some of the uh, some of the requirements for those large forces. And for years, you were a major customer consumer of intelligence, of course. Uh, and at Central Command, intelligence uh, was very important coming from the, I think it's the JIC, right? Joint Intelligence Center. Can you just, uh, you offered some perspective on, on your view of the U.S. intelligence community. Is there anything else you want to add up from your yeah, I, I, you know, Again, I'm very complimentary of it. And I'm, uh, you know, I, this is an area that I have a lot of certainly continuing interest in, but there are going to, there are going to be challenges. There are, there are going to be challenges beyond just what we've already talked about. I think if you look at the, uh, the emerging technology that is now coming on, whether it's 5G or whether it's uh, artificial intelligence or machine learning or these type of things, I think these are going to pose unique challenges for us in the long term. Uh, and they're going to, they're going to, they're going to impact our ability to collect and understand, uh, you know, collect intelligence and understand what's happening out there. Um, you know, the proliferation of data right now, uh, you know, getting our own arms around large data and how we mine that. I mean, the solutions, um, you know, and, and the understanding more and more is, is appearing in open source data uh, type things and and uh, and we need to make sure that we understand that as as well and of course we have other third-party actors out there that continue to be challenged and I'm not just talking about terrorists I'm talking about hackers I'm talking about others that are stepping into this very complex environment here and beginning to operate and they're going to have an influence on on uh, on uh, on security in the long term and we have to we really have to understand these kinds of things. And so as, as good as the intelligence community is today, um, it's going to, it, they're gonna to continue to be challenged by these types of, these types of issues in the future to continue to remain at the, at the, at the very capable level that they are. So last regional question, Afghanistan, do you think the talks are gonna to continue to go well? Are you optimistic for, success in those talks and how it's going to play out with the Taliban. What, what's your take on Yeah, well, uh, well to, to answer your question directly, I mean, I'm, I'm, I think it's possible to be hopeful and pragmatic at the, at the same time. Um, you know, this is going uh, right now about is, is about like we expected it to be. It's going to be very complex between the government of Afghanistan and the Taliban. Um, and uh, I think we expected that complex, slow, um, it's going to be Afghan hard the whole way through all of this. But the important point, I think, here is the process is joined. And in yep. uh, progress, even small, incrementally small progress is progress in Afghanistan. And, uh, and it's really what we've been fighting for, frankly, to get to this point where we can do this. And, this, and I think going forward, it's going to require our continued support uh, and influence and the handholding and other things along the way to make sure these parties continue to move forward. 
uh, and that's that's just what this is going to take. And it's going to be it's going to be hard the whole time. It's going to hurt the whole time, but uh, this is what it's going to is required for us to uh, to see this through to a solution. And you know, ultimately, you know, again, I'm always hopeful for the people of Afghanistan. Ultimately, it's going to take some compromise here on on the parts of the principal parties, the Taliban and the and the in uh, the uh, government of Afghanistan. But you know, strong partners like the United States and other of our other no NATO partners have got to continue to support this process. <clears throat> so, more generally, you have had a significant impact on counterterrorism and strategic, <clears throat> and you've been retired for a little bit. What are your reflections? I mean, what other challenges lie ahead from from your optic now? Well, uh, that's a great question. You know, it's interesting. Today's date is the 24th of April, and it was just 40 years ago today that uh, probably many of the uh, listeners to this and people involved in the communities in which you and I have been um, experienced Operation Eagle Claw, which, of oh. course, was our effort to go in and recover our hostages in Iran. And what we, you know, obviously it was a failure uh, from a military standpoint. It was a failure strategically, and it led to uh, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, investigations. The Holloway Commission, and uh, that ultimately directly that studied this, that ultimately fed the the uh, Goldwater Nichols Act, and led to the formation of SOCOM and the very unique capabilities. And and today has resulted in unquestionably. Uh, the best special operations force ever, not just in our own history, but ever, uh, and that capability. So, you know, what I think about today as I look at this is making sure that we don't take things for granted. Um, you know, a, a lesson out of uh, out of uh, out of Desert Storm, out of Eagle Claw here is, you know, you can't uh, you can't confuse enthusiasm with capability. It means you have to invest, and you always have to take this very very seriously. We always have to be looking at the situations that we find ourselves in, adapting and changing, uh, and you know, being what the nation needs us to be. Uh, this is not a disappearing threat. Um, and uh, as much as we would like it to be, um, it's not going away, and, and we will continue to contend with this for the foreseeable future. And so we have to maintain a sustainable approach to combating terrorism uh, going forward. Uh, in my view, it's better to deal with it uh, away than it is on our own shores, um, and that's going to require that people are going to have to be deployed, and we're going to have to develop partners, and we're going to have to make sure we got programs in place to support them, and and be able to, and we're going to have to focus money and intelligence and other resources onto it to make sure that we keep it at bay and keep it under keep it under an acceptable level of control. Um, so I, I think these are these are going to continue to be challenges to us because we're going to be distracted by other things. We're already being distracted by COVID. Uh, we're going to be, you know, we're, we're necessarily have to deal with um, with uh, great power competition here. These are these are going to drive resources, and they're going to take they're going to try to take things away as opposed to adding things. But we've got to figure out smart ways to keep keep the focus on this particular threat. Uh, even recognizing that there are greater threats out there. So we're going to have to continue to deal with this. Well, it's great to hear your insights on national security broadly and regionally focused as well. So talk, you're still going to be in a position to, to really influence thinking going forward. You are president and CEO of BENS, Business Executives for National Security. Can you talk a little bit about your new role, your transition, how that's gone? 
course, you're working from home right now. We're anxious to see you in D.C. around around town when this thing ends. But uh, how's it going? It's going good, and uh, I'm I'm very very proud to be part of this organization, uh, Ben's Business Executives National Security, a national nonprofit uh, comprised of uh, senior. Uh, business people from across our nation uh, who volunteer their time, treasure, and talent uh, to provide expertise, lessons learned to the to our national security community, and do it all pro bono. And they don't sell anything. They don't uh, 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 they don't take any money. Uh, they just do this because they are concerned about the about the country. I think the important thing that uh, that really I really like about this is it really highlights the importance of of this nexus between prosperity and security. Uh, this is so important for us in the long term. Um, and, you know, where we have strong uh, security, we have great opportunities for prosperity. And where we have where we have prosperous countries and we have business relationships, we generally have good security. So these things go hand in hand, and it's it's really, really important. And I'm, I'm hopeful that as, uh, as the President and CEO at Benz, that I'm able to continue to use this great organization as a kind of a neutral, incredible platform um, to, to bring these communities together, the national security community and the business community, uh, to help address, you know, issues of national concern. So I'm, I'm, I'm very, very proud to be associated with the organization. Well, that's exciting to hear. And uh, we're glad, as I said, we'll see you around D.C. and I hope to get you to the spy museum as soon as we're reopened and we will reopen. I'm curious if you have anything else you'd like to add. Is there anything I should have asked? Any other reflections before I wrap up with two quick questions? Uh, I think we've uh, I think we've covered uh, quite a bit there, uh, uh, Chris, and uh, I, I think you've, you've got most of my thoughts on on these items here right now. Well, I appreciate that. I'm curious what you're reading right now. I always like to ask senior leaders that question and any book recommendations and, and what are you digging into right now? Yes, uh, thanks. That's a great, that's a great question. Um, I, right now I'm reading a book called Mega Communities um, and it is by, a, uh, is by several authors. The leading one is a gentleman by the name of Mark Garencher who happens to be a Ben's member, frankly. Um, but this is a book and it talks about how leaders of government, uh, business and nonprofits kind of how they come together to take on global challenges. Um, you know, certainly we're seeing some of this right now in the pandemic and that's what kind of got me interested in reading about this, but it's a, it's a pretty good read and I would, I would certainly commend it to, to your listeners. I, I would also share one other great book that I've read here lately, a book called Range by a, a gentleman by the name of David Epstein. And what it basically, uh, what this book talks about is, about is why generalists, people that are, you know, general experts and, you know, have a, have a lot of knowledge and experience in a variety of areas, do well in this very specialized world. Uh, it's, it's really, really interesting uh, reading and uh, and they use a lot of sports analogies and in some cases some military analogies here to talk about why uh, people with broad-based experience, broadly developed skills um, seem to thrive in a world where we have a lot of uh, specialized, uh, specialized capabilities, specialized focus uh, areas here. And I think it's a, I think it's a pretty, it's a pretty good book. I think to read it helps, I think, you know, understand uh, people and how they think about things and how we, how we develop kind of the next generation of leadership. We'll, we'll put that on our reading list to be sure. 
So, sir, that's a wrap. We covered a lot of ground. I want to thank you for your long and distinguished service to the nation. It was a privilege to, to work under you, serve with you. And uh, I'm very grateful for you taking the time to share your insights with us today. Thanks, Chris. It's great to be with you and wonderful to be on SpyCast. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit. If you want to donate to the museum or if you're local and want to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now.